And uh, just want to thank you all for your prayers for me last week. Rachel had quite a sermon last week, huh? Just for the record, I did not put Rich up to that. So uh, that was coming from his heart. Uh, yeah. Well, today we are coming to arguably the greatest chapter in Isaiah. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 40. An amazing chapter. And uh, who better to, to lead us into sort of the New Testament of Isaiah, Isaiah 40, than uh, a New Testament scholar, uh, Mark Jennings. Many of you heard him before. You heard him, some of you heard him preach in August. And he's a student at Gordon-Conwell, a member of our church, and uh, just a gifted communicator in many ways. His wife, uh, we thought she was going into labor last week, but false alarm. But she could go into labor, I don't know, right now. So 20 minutes, maybe. 20 minutes. It's like the return of Christ. You don't know when it's coming, but <laughs> you must be ready. So, uh, Mark, uh, we are just totally privileged to have you back uh, opening the Word of God with us today. Thanks. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm definitely very delighted to be here, though. I, I'm, I'm probably safe to say Jeremy's more delighted that I'm here today because there was that brief freak moment where I thought, uh-oh. It is happening again. Kim is about to go into labor. And I thought, you know, oh, do I call Jeremy? You know, it's 2 a.m. I know what Rich spoke about. Am I supposed to do that? Am I not supposed to do that? And I, then I thought, well, maybe it'd be fun just to prank call him. <laughs> and I got excited about that. And, but, I don't know, I felt somewhere in Leviticus there's probably something, you know, thou shalt not prankest thou pastor, you know. And so I backed off that. I did it one time before, so I didn't. So, uh... But yeah, so uh, we thought we thought the baby might be born last week, um, and he didn't come, and could come any time now. I don't know if it's a harbinger of things to come on this kid, but he's making life interesting for us already. Well, as we prepare to uh, hear what the Lord uh, has inspired through the prophet Isaiah, uh, join with me in prayer. Lord God, you are a a wondrous and mighty God. You are the creator and Lord of all and, and you are pleased in your will to invade history. You are not an idea. You are not a philosophy. You are real. And you came in the flesh. It is an amazing idea, concept, almost absurd that you, God, would come in the flesh. And we here today can just come and be thankful and glorify you. Prepare our hearts to receive what you would have us to hear today in this wonderful, inspired book, Isaiah. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Well, we've reached a, a very important point in Isaiah. If you're visiting with us, Jeremy has been leading us through a series uh, on the book of the prophet Isaiah. And you can, in a sense, divide Isaiah into two halves, two sections, with the theme of the first section, chapters 1 through 39, being basically about God's faithfulness, Israel's disobedience, and the judgment that resulted because of that, the judgment in exile. And that's the overarching theme of the first part. But when you get to chapter 40, there's a shift. There's a new theme that starts to emerge. 
now the theme starts to be not God's holy, righteous judgment, but rather God's desire to reconcile His people back to Himself. His desire to redeem His people. And you have this message of His grace that starts to be the overarching theme of the the second part. So we've reached a very key transition point in Isaiah. And the verses we're going to look at today actually introduce that. Now you may have noticed I haven't given you those verses yet. And perhaps you've even been a little bit frustrated. And perhaps some of you know, oh, he said Isaiah 40 and you're already going there. Well, I haven't given you those verses yet on purpose, by design, because we're not going to Isaiah first. We're actually going to go to the New Testament first. You see, this passage figures very prominently in the New Testament. I'm, I'm willing to bet that if I was to read to you one of these verses and ask you where does this come from, many of you, if not most of you, would tell me Matthew, Mark, or Luke before you would tell me Isaiah. It is an important passage in the New Testament, in the Gospel. And so we're going to go there first, and and this is why, and I think this is an important part of, of understanding and reading the Bible. There is an organic unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the New Testament interprets the Old. And the Old Testament informs us of the New. I'll say that again. The New Testament interprets the Old, and the Old Testament informs us of the New. And so when you see a passage that figures prominently in both Testaments, it's important to see what the overall message is of this inspired Scripture. So turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. If you're visiting with us today, uh, we have... uh, located in front of you, Pew Bibles. And you'll find uh, Mark chapter 1 on page 990. Mark chapter 1, starting with verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, Who will prepare your way? A voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord, Make straight paths for him. And so John came, Baptizing in the desert region, And preaching a baptism of repentance, For the forgiveness of sins. Now, as you're reading this, It's very easy to just kind of fly right by it. You know, to sort of, You want to get into the meat of the gospel, And so you're just cruising through these first passages. And you see this prophecy, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And you're like, okay. You know, oh, it's about John. That means somewhere, here in Isaiah, somewhere there's a prophecy that said before the Messiah comes, there'll be a guy that goes ahead of him who's going to talk about a bunch of stuff. I got it. It's been fulfilled. Cool. And move on. I mean, that's the tendency we all have. The problem is, that's not the way the gospel writers are using the Old Testament. They're not just interested in stringing along a bunch of prophecies like pearls on a necklace to see how many they can get to. They are purposefully picking and choosing and placing these prophecies in their gospel to convey a depth of meaning. 
And so for us, one of the things we need to do is we need to slow down. And we need to look, when we see an Old Testament passage mentioned, we need to look and go, okay, what is this actually telling me? You see, for the first century Jew, to hear this prophecy would come with an, a tidal wave, an avalanche of meaning, of background, of depth. And, and Mark has picked this passage to introduce his gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ, Mark has chosen this prophecy to introduce it. Matthew actually even has a little bit more of the prophecy than Mark does. But Mark places it right at the beginning. And we should ask ourselves why. Now you heard me say for the first century Jew, this would have an avalanche of depth of meaning. You see, this passage is an important passage in their thought world. Now what in the, what in the world does that mean, thought world? Well, thought world is when a phrase or words have more meaning behind them than what they simply seem to say. Let me give you an example. We're going to do like a, a little game. You know, you get the psychiatrist that says, you know, I'm going to say something and then you tell me what first comes to your mind. This is thought world. So if I was to say, Bill Buckner. For some of you, this is, has a lot of depth of meaning behind it. For others, you're like, who? You know? Well, Bill Buckner played first base for the Boston Red Sox. And in 1986, the Red Sox were playing the Mets in the World Series. And the Red Sox have been on a bit of a losing streak when it comes to World Series. 1918, I think, was the last one. It's two outs. Red Sox are about to win the game. They would win the World Series. A ground ball is hit to Mr. Buckner. My 18-month-old could have fielded this ball and tagged first base. It goes right through his legs. Red Sox lose. No World Series. So for some of you, Bill Buckner almost makes you want to throw up in your mouth a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> Another example of Thought World. September 11th. There's a lot of depth behind that phrase. Of, of terrorism, of death, of destruction, of heroism, of strength, of American pride. Now, if you weren't from this culture, if you didn't experience September 11th, that's not a part of your thought world. Okay, these are recent examples. What if I was to say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? Did I give you the whole verse? No. Did I give you the whole passage? No. Did I give you the context? No. But for many of you, there is a wealth of background behind that brief phrase. That's what's happening with this prophecy. That's what's happening to the first century Jew. So what we want to do is say, okay, what is Mark trying to tell us in citing this prophecy? Now let's turn to Isaiah 40, starting with verse 1. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 714. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. 
A voice of one calling, in the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Well, the first thing we notice here with Isaiah is, is a message of comfort. But not just comfort. Isaiah is not simply saying, be comforted in your struggles. This is a message of comfort in direct reference to the exile. Right up through chapters 39, we've been talking about the judgment of exile. And even in 39, Hezekiah and the southern kingdom of Judah, who were spared the Assyrian exile, we studied a couple weeks ago how they would not be spared the Babylonian exile. Exile is coming. And now the Lord has inspired Isaiah to, to give a message of comfort. So when we read that her hard service has been completed, that's a reference to the struggles, to the labors that the Jews will endure in the Babylonian exile. So it's a message of hope. It's a message of comfort. Now, it seems surprising then that Mark uses this passage. You know, nowhere in here does it seem to talk about a John the Baptist character. And in fact, we know after the Jews were exiled that several decades later they returned back to the land. They returned back to the land centuries before Jesus came. So how is, is, how is Mark using this prophecy? How is he using this prophecy to talk about being fulfilled in the life of Jesus? I mean, is he playing kind of loose and fast with the facts, you know? Is, is he hoping there are no fact, fact checkers out there on the internet that might check his documents to see if they're false or not, hypothetically? You know, I mean, what's going on here? Well, I think Mark is asking his readers to think a little more deeply about what exile truly is and what the end of exile truly is. You see, exile, throughout the Old Testament, exile is a common judgment by God on His people. The removal from the land happens throughout in various instances. But here's the important part. The exile judgment is always intimately intertwined with the loss or reduction of God's presence. Throughout you see that the loss of the land and the loss of God's presence go together. And here's why, and I think it's an important to point to remember. In, in the Old Testament, God chose to have His presence dwell more intimately in a specific locality with a specific people. And part of the blessing of that presence, part of the favor of God, was land. The land served as a very tangible example of God's favor. Therefore, when God's favor is removed, when God's presence is taken away from His people because of their sin, the land also is taken away. And you see this pattern throughout the Old Testament. The first exiles, Adam and Eve. During the garden, 
in the garden, they had a wonderful intimate, intimate relationship with God. They sinned. They were judged. Part of the judgment was exile from the garden. But they also no longer enjoyed the intimate, close relationship in God's presence that they had once had. In, in your bulletin, you'll see a handout here labeled Isaiah. And I've just cited for you a couple of places where you see this linking of exile and God's presence. Genesis 4.14, you have Cain speaking to God. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. Fall down to Jeremiah 15.1. And Jeremiah is talking about these same historical events that Isaiah is talking about. Jeremiah 15.1 Then the Lord said to me, even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not go out to this people. Send them away from my presence. Let them go. Right below that, Jeremiah 23, 39. Therefore, I will surely forget you and cast you out of my presence along with the city I gave to you and your fathers. I hope we never hear that. So you have this linking of the land, but more importantly, exile is truly a judgment of the loss of God's presence. So the end of exile is not marked simply by occupying a piece of dirt. The end of exile is marked by the return, the coming of God's presence with his people. Now do you start to see why Mark likes this prophecy so much? I mean, in one level, it is fulfilled in the history of the nation of Israel in their returning back to their homeland. But in a much more ultimate level, in a much greater, deeper way, Mark is saying, God's presence is coming. And not to dwell in a temple, not to dwell in a tabernacle, not to dwell in a sanctuary, not to dwell in the ark. God's presence is coming in the flesh. God's presence is coming in Jesus Christ. This is why Mark can pull on this passage and say, it is truly being fulfilled in gospel. So incidentally, by the way, you get one of those heretical groups, you know, the kind that knock on the doors with the matching ties. The kind that usually say, you know, Jesus wasn't a God, he was some sort of lesser deity, if he was divine at all. Usually when they knock on the door, if you're like me, you jump behind the couch, turn off the lights, mute the TV, and hope they go away. <laughs> but should you decide to open that door, you point to them this passage in Mark, and you tell them, it's interesting, you don't think that Jesus was, was God because Mark, who wrote the Gospel, clearly did. That's a side note. Back to our passage in Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. In case you forgot, in case you missed the entire message of chapters 1 through 39, the Jews are in exile because they sinned against God. 
They're not there because the Assyrians got one amazing army. They're not there because the Babylons really have cool generals. No. They are there because they disobeyed God. They sinned. And God's presence will not abide with the sinful people. They don't mix. God hates sin. Now here, God is declaring. God is, is, is saying that He is now going to look upon Israel with favor and in mercy. Don't kid yourself. This is not a situation where Israel committed a crime, Israel did her time, and now Israel's merited back grace with God. No. She is receiving it from God. God is giving the grace. God is giving the mercy. And this phrase, she has received double for all her sins, sort of an interesting phrase. And you basically have two choices with this. What is the double? What is being compared? Well, is that she received double the punishment for her sins? Double the judgment for her sins? That's one choice. Or did she receive double the grace? Double the mercy? Double the comfort? And this is why context is so critical. This passage is a message about God's acting in grace about God's acting in comfort to redeem His people back to, her, back to Him. What is being compared is the magnitude, the quality, the strength, the power of God's mercy with the sin of Israel. And they are not equal. God's holiness is much greater than sin. Paul does the same thing. In Romans 5, right? Paul is comparing the disobedience and the power of that and the impact of, of Adam with the obedience and the power and the impact of Christ. And he makes a statement of how much more the obedience of one man is to the disobedience of the other. God's grace is far superior. Satan and God are not equal, folks. It is no comparison. And you can start to see why Mark is seeing this to be fulfilled. I mean, this passage drips with the juice of the fruit of the gospel. You know, the sins are forgiven. And the sins have a price to be paid. And God sent His Son to die on a cross to pay this price. Not temporarily, but ultimately in a manner that would explode through time into eternity. And it is so that we can be in God's presence. It is through Christ that we can be in God's presence. It is through Christ that we are declared pardoned. It is through Christ that we are declared justified. It is through Christ that we can be united with God. Not through meditations. Not through some special chant. Not through some special crystal. No. Through Christ. It's not surprising then that Mark is telling us, yes, in one way, this prophecy was fulfilled in the history of Israel, but in a much more ultimate way, it's fulfilled in the coming of Christ. So he introduces his gospel with this prophecy, and it's, but I also think it sort of echoes and resounds throughout the whole book. Isaiah 40, 
verse 5, And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind will see it. Mark 15 is the chapter where Mark describes the crucifixion of Christ and all the climactic events surrounding it, all of the profound statements included in it. You find that in Mark 15. And at the cross, when when Jesus breathes his last, Mark records a statement of a witness who saw the whole thing. He records this statement. It's in, in verse 39. And this, this witness who saw this, all this happen, this witness says, surely this man was the Son of God. Do you know who this witness was? It's a Roman guard. Not an apostle, not a Jew, a Roman guard. The very symbol of the most powerful nation in all mankind at the time saw Christ on the cross and gave Him glory And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it. It is being fulfilled in the cross and I believe this prophecy is being fulfilled today in missions. So what are we to do? You know, how do we work this into our own lives? Because I think it's difficult. I think it's difficult when you read about a historic moment to find life application. It's much easier sometimes like in Paul when he will just lay it out for you. Here's, I think, a little bit harder. We've got to be careful. We don't want to create some simple allegory or metaphor. We don't want to diminish the strength of this historical moment. So I think a good way to start our our application to our lives is to to ask ourselves when you approach Scripture, don't say, what is this saying to me? Don't say, what is this saying to my life situation? First and foremost, ask yourself, what is this telling me about God? That's how you approach Scripture. What is this telling me about God? And I think the message of Isaiah that is also picked up in Mark is a beautiful, beautiful, amazing theme that God, in His sovereignty, was pleased to provide a way for us to be in His presence. That God, in His sovereignty, was pleased to provide a way for us to be in His presence. So what's the first thing you do in response to that? You'll hear me say this in Sunday school classes, in in seminary classes. If you want a daily application, praise God daily. That's the first application right here. Praise God for this. The second application, I believe, is a trust in God's will and a trust in His plan and a patience that goes with this. You ever ask yourself why does it take so long for things to happen? I have three sets of friends who've been trying to get pregnant for four years, and they can't. I know they're asking, why is this taking so long? The prophecy in Isaiah was centuries before Christ came. Adam's sin, oh, how much time was that before Christ came? You ever ask yourself, why did it take so long? You know, why did God wait so long to send his son? And so there's a trust that God knows what he's doing. Incidentally, historically, it's sort of interesting when Christ came. It's one of the few periods in the history of the world that the entire region of the ancient Near East spoke a common language. See, Alexander the Great Great had come a few centuries earlier and he had spread the Greek culture 
He had spread the Greek language. So he had a common tongue that area knew. It's also interesting that Rome was a very powerful country and had given safe travel. You didn't have this safety in travel, relatively speaking, during any other period in that area. So Paul, for example, was able to travel the whole region in a common tongue and spread the gospel like wildfire. Interesting historical moment. I think God knows what he's doing. So there's a patience, there's a trust. And then the final application, and I'll end with this, and I believe this is the one that is spoken to directly in the text that Mark picks up on the, in the ministry of John the Baptist. You get that stuff of a voice calling, of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. This is the imagery. This idea is of a king returning and people going before him to make sure that path was clear and unobstructed. And the ministry of... This is directly applied to the ministry of John the Baptist. And his ministry as a forerunner to Christ was to proclaim the kingdom of God coming and demand and exhort the people to do what? To repent. A repentant people was necessary for the coming of the Lord. That still happens today. Down south, we call this getting right with God. Right? You know, you, you wonder why you might not be feeling the presence of the Lord or walking with the Lord. I can tell you why. I don't know the details, but I can tell you why. I know enough from my own life that I can tell you why. Is you've got sin blocking you. It's the only thing. You've got sin blocking you. You need to repent. And, see, and repentance, what is, repentance isn't merely just saying, I know I'm a sinner. Repentance isn't, although that's included, repentance isn't just saying, I know God is God, although that's included. Repentance is not an intellectual affirmation. Repentance is a surrender of your will to God's. You see, the base of sin, the base of all sin, is pride. The base of every single sin, I believe, is pride. is a declaration that my desires are more preferable and more pleasurable than God's. That I would rather do the desires of my flesh than what God wants. And repentance involves a surrendering of that. I mean, I can, I can sin all day and call myself a sinner. But repentance is a change. I'm letting go of my will. Not my will, but thine be done. Now, if you've come here today and, and, and you have never accepted the Lord as your Savior, this is the first key moment. This is right now. It's still open to you, and I can't guarantee you it's going to be open to you tomorrow. But the invitation is still today. Repent. And then accept Christ as your Savior and dwell in His presence. If you have accepted Christ as your Savior, but you're not walking with God, you need to get right with God. You need to repent. Because here's the good news, folks. God was pleased to provide a way for you to dwell in His presence. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. 
Father, we are just thankful to you for for just the simple fact that we can be a disobedient people. We have sinned against you. We have willfully separated ourselves out of your presence and your judgment is holy. But yet, you are merciful. And you desire that we repent and come to you. That you desire for us to be in your presence. There is no more amazing thought than that. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Let us be in your presence. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.